Axis Mundi. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our amazing lineup of creators. Welcome to Straight White American Jesus. My name is Brad Onishi. I am faculty at the University of San Francisco. Our show is hosted in a partnership with the CAP Center, UCSB, and I'm here today with my co-host. I'm Dan Miller, Associate Professor of Religion and Social Thought at Landmark College. Uh, it's good to see you, Brad. Good to see you too, Dan. I, I uh, Off air, you've been giving me uh, parenting advice and things to expect as uh, you know. I, I progress through my my child's uh, newborn stage and then toddler stage and then, you know, uh, early childhood and all of the children's movies and uh, songs I'll listen to, the birthday parties, things things are things that are on my horizon. Well, you've already gotten off to a good start because, for, first of all, I know that we've talked about this. You're not a gender essentialist, so you probably aren't like, yay, it was a boy or a girl or whatever. Um, but more importantly, you didn't have a gender reveal party that managed to like burn down half of a state or kill anybody or dismember anybody. So you're off to a good start. Your next big one on these kind of commemorations will be the obligatory first birthday party where like basically the baby buries their face in a cake and everybody thinks it's cute and takes pictures. And so we, uh, we all look forward to those, uh, in due time, I think. Yes. And, uh, I have long used the first birthday party in classes as a uh, a way to explain to students how rituals work and that sometimes they're not about what we say they are. Like, yes, it's the kid's first birthday, but are we celebrating them because they're going to remember? No, we're celebrating them because uh, a lot of parents and grandparents and relatives and others want to celebrate the fact that they're they're with us anyway. Blah blah blah. All right. And you also just you have to have that material for when they start dating. That's where those pictures really come out, right? Yeah. It's the uh, the embarrassing materials uh, for those kind of things. So, well done. Dan and I will be starting a new podcast on parent. No, we won't. Okay. No one wants that from us. Uh, everyone right now is like, please shut up and talk about politics. So we will. All right. Here we go. Yesterday, Dan. Uh, well, let me let me tell folks what we're doing today. So we're going to talk about. Um, Senate Judiciary Committee and what they found uh, in relationship to January 6th and uh, Trump's attempts to overturn the election. This will let Dan really give us some insight into populism and nationalism and how they work. Uh, We'll then talk about uh, just, to me, a bombshell interview from The Atlantic with uh, with someone from the Claremont Institute, and uh, we'll explain why that's important. But the Claremont Institute is the, the think tank that basically uh, gave us the the lawyer who outlined Trump's uh, six-point plan to overturn the election on January 6th. So the Claremont Institute is really kind of at the forefront of MAGA Nation. And, and if there's a think tank that is the MAGA think tank, it's Claremont. And so we'll get into that. We'll then also talk about uh, the Women's March from last week and what that means for a new generation of activists, especially in the wake of the Texas abortion bill. I will, uh, at the end, tell you why I'm so angry at Joe Manchin, and uh, and then we'll go to reasons for hope. So, Dan, yesterday, Senate Judiciary Committee found a number of things, okay? Um, number one, um, there was a concerted effort on the part of Trump and uh, his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, to overturn the election by involving the Department of Justice, okay? And so uh, this led to many... Uh, machinations behind the scenes. And here are some of the 
the findings that uh, the, the Senate Judiciary Committee released yesterday. President Trump repeatedly asked the Department of Justice leadership to endorse his false claims that the election was stolen and assist his efforts to overturn the election results, beginning on the day that Attorney General Barr announced his resignation and cumulating to the January, uh, uh, January 6th insurrection. Number two, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows asked Acting Attorney General Rosen to initiate election fraud investigations on multiple occasions, violating longstanding restrictions on White House D, uh, DOJ communications about specific law enforcement matters. So there's been this sort of wall of separation between the White House and Department of Justice because the Department of Justice, Dan, is not supposed to be the kind of police arm of the president. It's supposed to be separate and independent. And yet Mark Meadows reaches out and says, hey, we would really love it, uh, Attorney General, uh, if, if you would uh, basically initiate election fraud investigations. Number three, after personally meeting with Trump, Jeffrey Bossett Clark pushed Rosen and Donahue to assist Trump's election subversion scheme and told Rosen he would decline Trump's potential offer to install him as acting attorney general if Rosen agreed to aid the scheme. So who is Jeffrey Bossett Clark? Well, somebody who was uh, potentially going to become uh, attorney general or acting attorney general if Trump decided to get rid of Rosen for not trying to overturn the election. Number four, Trump allies with links to the Stop the Steal movement and the January 6th insurrection participated in the pressure campaign against DOJ, including U.S. Representative Scott Perry, PA Representative Doug Mastriano, and Trump campaign advisor Cleta Mitchell. Um, so you have some Trump lackeys, a uh, couple of representatives and campaign advisors who are pressuring uh, the Department of Justice alongside Trump and Mark Meadows, okay? Um, there's a number of others um, I could go on. I don't want to sort of just read to everybody all day. But a couple things, Dan, this gives us another glimpse behind the scenes of the plan to try to overturn the election. We talked two weeks ago about that the, the sort of uh, legal uh, uh, blueprint for this and, and the ways that John Eastman, the lawyer from, uh, among other things, the Claremont Institute, gave to Trump and uh, was going to implement through Mike Pence. We now have another glimpse behind the scenes into how Trump was going to try to overturn the election uh, using DOJ and pressure on the Department of Justice, uh, among other uh, avenues. Oh, I, you know, enough in the weeds. I, I'm wondering what you think about this and how this works uh, in terms of your background with populism and nationalism and so on. Yeah, so one of the first things, and it's another shout out to the uh, participants of our first uh, Straight White American Jesus seminar, we were, you know, some of us were talking about this and, and the the issue of rhetoric and how the rhetoric matters around this and words like coup are now coming out, um, as well as the language of insurrection. And it fits, it fits if people look at like what was actually going on, what the significance would have been if the election had not been certified or had been overturned. Uh, I think you and I both see this, the the run up to January 6th as culminating in January 6th because these things didn't work for Trump. Uh, the Department of Justice ultimately didn't do these things. And the GOP is hiding behind that right now. They're saying, like, this is all a bunch of silliness. No steps were taken. Therefore, there was no attempt to subvert the election. Uh, when had Trump had his way, steps would have been taken. Um but the part of it, I think for me, uh, and I'll put on my, my sort of, you know, geeky academic hat for a minute, right, is we use these words like populism and nationalism, these big fancy words. We don't need to worry about everything that they are. But you and I have been talking about Christian nationalism, right, and what that is. And people who study populism and nationalism will point out that there are certain 
really typical features of what they do if they are in power, right? And one of those things is that they take over state mechanisms, mechanisms that are supposed to be mechanisms of the state. The Department of Justice does not belong to a political party. It's not supposed to be the tool of a particular president. It represents the United States. That's what it does. It represents the U.S. Uh, as, as its own entity, regardless of who's, who's in power. And a defining feature of populisms and authoritarian regimes all over the world, right, is that the judicial system and the, you know, their departments of justice, their, their justice systems become just arms of the person in power. This is Trump trying to do this. Uh, and there were plenty of people, it appears from these reports within the orbit of the DOJ who were happy to let this happen, who would have let this happen. Thankfully, I think for all of us, there are people in the DOJ who take seriously that the DOJ is not an arm of the president of the United States. Um, but that's one. I mean, this is just a defining feature. We talk about this before Banana Republic stuff, right? That if this was going on somewhere in, you know, some former Soviet uh, Republic or in South America somewhere, we would be shocked and appalled. Um, it's the United States. So people want to play it down. The other sort of more interesting thing for me, and this this brings us into, I think, a kind of theological or political theological element of this is if we think about like, what do elections actually do? Like, what are they? Right. So we live in a country of 330 plus million people or, or whatever it is since the last census came out. Huge country, very complex, diverse. We have a variety of people of different religious and ethnic backgrounds and languages and all that sort of stuff. Right. So in what we could call a sort of established democracy, a democratic system with structures uh, and institutions intended for, for democratic governance. And I just as an aside will say there are more than enough problems with the U.S. already, but acknowledging that, that, that that's what we mean with these, these uh, democratic systems. If we're a democratic country, what do elections do? What they are is they're a kind of mediating institution that is intended to help take all of those differences. And from that to discern what do we as a country most want to do? Not everybody can have their way. Not everybody can have what they want. But we are going to, at least in, in principle, enfranchise as many people as we can, have legitimately representative structures so that everybody's represented, and together we'll adjudicate those differences of opinion and policy and all that sort of stuff. And in a presidential election, that's what it is. So there's an element of majority rule, and people emphasize that. But another feature of a meaningful democratic system is pluralism and difference and the incompatibility of political views. Real choice right? Within populism, that's not what elections are, right? We've talked about this. Populism works with this sense of who the real or the true or the authentic people are. And within populist systems, the populist leader occupies a really, really significant position. And what they are is it, it's a different model of representation. It's an almost incarnational model. It becomes the model where the populist leader is not just a representative of the authentic people. That person is an embodiment of those people, right? They are present in and through the actions of that person. Uh, and just for people that are interested, if you want to go look at people like like Carl Schmidt or or Kantorowitz writing about the Middle Ages, it's a very very similar model to to the what's called, called the theory of the king's two bodies that the king embodies the state. It's very much a part of populism. There's a sense that Trump playing that for, and we see this. This is why there's the fervent 
nationalist fervor that people have for him because he is not just somebody they elected to represent them. He is them. He is the embodiment of what they want. He's the embodiment of the popular will. And within that, elections are not about selecting a leader. They are not about working through differences and and uh, identifying what a majority is or what the common good is. They are about making sure the right person is in power and keeping there. They're about acclamation, not election. And that's exactly what we see here. This is like populist logic 101. Trump is the leader, not the president, not the elected leader, the leader, like the, the you know, with a sort of a capital L. And any effort to replace him, including an election that's duly carried out, is illegitimate by definition because he is the embodiment of the true and authentic Americans. And that's what we saw. We saw that in the lead up when he was worried he was going to lose. So he tried to delegitimize the election. We saw it through tying this together with those taking of, of state mechanisms to try to make sure that he remains in power. And when that failed, we saw it in January 6th, as people said, we we're going to rise up and make sure that the rightful leader of America remains the rightful leader. And we have to understand that people have to understand when we say rightful there, it does not mean duly elected. It means the person who embodies the authentic, true Americans, all those straight, white, Christian Americans out there who are the real Americans and who need to be to, to be kept in power and control those those mechanisms. So I'll take my geek hat off just a bit, back off, take a breath and, and toss it back to you for your your thoughts or, or other insights about this. We could we won't, but we could spend hours on just this Senate report. So. I, I just to bring it down to the ground, I think everything you said there about how Trump is supposed to incarnate MAGA Nation and the United States rather than to represent them, right, gives people a window. So if you're wondering, why do people have Trump flags? Why do people have shirts with Trump on them? Why is it about Trump and not the United States? Uh, why in your lifetime have you never seen somebody with a I mean, in all those Obama years, Dan, in, in, in 2007 and eight, right, uh, when we started to uh, get excited about the, the, the possibility of a Barack Obama presidency, uh, there was never a, a, an impulse to start carrying around Obama flags, right? I mean, there was the hope poster of Obama, but that was the closest ever, anyone ever got to this kind of fervor. What you said really explains, I think, for people why Trump becomes something else. He becomes a totem of MAGA nation rather than a representative of uh, the American people. And I, I think that's really important to keep in mind. And so I appreciate that. I also appreciate you just putting in context how what Trump did is a classic move uh, out of the uh, playbook of uh, authoritarians who use a populist movement in order to gain power of, uh, over all aspects of government uh, and its, uh, and its uh, administration. So I think that's important. All right. We need to make a couple announcements. And when we come back, we're going to go to uh, how this looks on the uh, it, it, just in a bombshell wave out of the Claremont Institute. We're going to tie all this back in, in language that I think is really uh, startling and unsettling. Two quick announcements, friends, for today that we need you to know about uh, when it comes to straight white American Jesus. Number one, uh, I, Brad, am going to be leading a group on uh, masculinity and love and sex after purity culture through the Center for Trauma and Resolution and Recovery. That group starts next week. There are a few spots left. So if you go to traumaresolutionandrecovery.com and look for support groups, you will see it listed. You can sign up and take part. It lasts uh, 10 weeks all the way up until uh, the end of the calendar year. And so I'd encourage you, if those are things you've heard about on the Mild at Heart series and you're interested in, 
please uh, jump in and grab one of the last spots. Dan uh, has just finished running our first straight white American Jesus seminar, and that seminar is called Pure America, Religion, Race, Nation. It went great. It was at a, a, a just an amazing, dynamic conversation and a set of interactions, uh, and we want to do it again. So it's going to be happening in January, and next week we will be opening up the signups, announcing the dates, and letting you know all of the details. So if you're on the waiting list or if you're somebody who wanted to sign up but couldn't last time, your chance is coming. Be on the lookout at Straight White American Jesus in the next week for all the details uh, for that seminar in January. All right, Dan. So you, we just talked about populism and a, a sort of understanding of President Trump is representing the real Americans or the uh, the real people, right? And we talk about this a lot in this show. I think some people might start to wonder, like, all right, Brad and Dan say that a lot. Is that actually what's happening out there in the world? I mean, is just is this just them repeating a line on their podcast so that they can sort of have the same discussion over and over again? So if you listen to our show two weeks ago, we talked about this guy, John Eastman, who's a lawyer who really outlined the legal strategy to overturn the election. He was the one that told Trump and Trump's people, okay, when it comes to January 6th, here's what Pence needs to do in order to basically say we don't have enough uh, legitimate votes to elect a, a president according to the right, uh, you know, the normal procedure. So we're going to do it in this alternate way, blah, blah, blah. By the end of the six points, we uh, get to a Trump presidency. Dan, we went over this in our weekly roundup blueprint for a coup, Okay. John Eastman is from the Claremont Institute. The Claremont Institute rose to prominence during Trump's reign because it was a think tank that was unabashedly MAGA nation uh, and unabashedly pro-Trump. The Claremont Institute is located in California. It's about 20 minutes from where I grew up. It is not part of the Claremont Colleges, which you might have heard of. It is not part of Claremont Graduate School, which you might have heard of. It is one of those institutes that is separate from all of that, but because of its name, it sort of, I think, uh, very uh, slyly likes to sort of rely on the association, even though that there is no absolute connection institutionally uh, among them. There's a, a new interview at The Atlantic uh, where Emma Green interviews Ryan Williams. Ryan Williams is the president of the Claremont Institute. Dan, when I read this, it just it, it was just a chance for us to bring to everyone listening uh, the kind of real and, and concrete ways that the thought leaders in MAGA Nation understand the United States as it stands today. So I want to play my favorite game, which is for us to read a text, for me to throw, it, throw, uh, throw the, the text to you and say, Dan Miller, what do you think? So at The Atlantic, a couple of days ago, Emma Green interviews uh, Ryan Williams, the president of the Claremont Institute. Okay, Here are, here's my first quote from Ryan Williams. Let me start big. The mission of the Claremont Institute is to save Western civilization. Okay. So this is something he says in a video that, that he made for the Claremont Institute. The founders were pretty unanimous with Washington leading the way that the Constitution is really only fit for Christian people. This is something he told uh, Emma, uh, Emma Green, uh, who interviewed him for The Atlantic. So, Dan, A, he's going to save Western civilization. B, the founders were pretty unanimous with Washington leading the way that the Constitution is really only fit for a Christian people. Dan Miller, thoughts on this one? Uh, he's wrong. 
I'm done. No, I'm not done. All right, so... <laughs> No, so I mean, a, a couple things. Number one, again, we, and we've seen this, right? That that Western civilization constitution is only fit for 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 you know Christian people. What's this going to be? Again, we talk about decoding language all the time, right? Like of what what the language is doing. That's code for Western white Western Europeans, right? And white Western European civilization. It's what some people used to call a kind of European chauvinism. We could call it white supremacy, whatever. And and it's it's gonna play out as this goes. Like it's just ways of of talking all around the notion that exactly what we say, real Americans are white and they're Christian and they're patriarchal and so forth, right? Um so, so, so we'll see, you know, what, what quotes you bring out. But we, again, we invite others, go look at the Atlantic piece. Just Google Atlantic Claremont interview, it'll pop right up. Um the other piece about the founders is just it's just nonsense. Um I'll steer people toward Andrew Seidel, a friend of the the show and his book, The Founding Myth, where he talks about this. Another book that just comes to mind, it's 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 several years old now, but still really useful, is called That Godless Court uh, that looks at this. Um, all kinds of books that look, uh, another one is, I think it's called The Faiths of the Founding Fathers or something like that. Let me just say this. If you take your average white evangelical American church, and they've got their belief statement. And for somebody to join their church, what usually happens in an evangelical church is you have to profess that you've had a conversion experience and that you believe certain things, right? That, that that's how you join it. Most of the founders would not be able to join those churches. They would not be able to join First Baptist Dallas uh, and our, our MAGA friends down there. Why? They were not, or many of them were not Orthodox Christians. Most of them were what are called deists. We don't need to worry about that too much, except that they weren't card-carrying Christians, very few of them would have fit into a contemporary white evangelical model of religiosity or spirituality. So uh, if you and if you broaden it beyond the founders to the philosophers they read, right, or the people who, who influenced them, uh, people like John Locke and others, um, there's an argument to be made that John Locke really has a, a pretty limited view of like what religious toleration entails. But there's no way to draw a straight line and be like, oh, it's only a Christian nation. Um, the U.S. had that option. When they had the Constitutional Convention, there were proposals to say that the U.S. would be a Christian nation and just not specify what brand of Christianity. Those proposals were ex explicitly rejected. So the, the notion that it was always intended just to be a Christian nation, um, I think, is just untenable. And again, just check out Seidel's book, The Founding Myth. This is probably the most recent and a really great takedown of that, that line of reasoning. Again, I just want to I just want to reiterate that the Claremont Institute is a place that uh, was <laughs> favored by the Trump administration. It was a place that the Trump administration was getting advice and getting input. John Eastman, the lawyer. I mean, all of that stuff. So it's again, I just I, I know some of you listening are going to be tempted once again to be like, oh, some fringe think tank out in you know, the desert of California, who cares? And again, I just want to reiterate when this guy says we're trying to save Western civilization. And the founders were clear that, you know, the Constitution works only for a Christian people. We're talking about the president of a think tank that had the ear and the eyes and the the attention of the uh, 45th president and his administration. OK, he then goes, Dan, in the, in the interview to talk about uh, his enemies and, and the, the people that he thinks are really ruining the country and that are progressives. So he, he this is how he talks about progressivism. OK. Progressives think that limited government, in the founder sense, checks and balances, robust federalism, a fairly fixed view of human nature, and the rights attendant to it, all has to give way to a notion that rights evolve with the times. 
So there's this resistance to rights evolving or changing, Dan, and then there's this idea that there's a fixed human nature, okay? I'm going to give you a couple more lines, and then we'll let, we'll let you run with it. I would say the leading edge of progressivism now is this kind of woke social justice anti-racism. It's a threat to limited government. So he's trying to tie his opposition to anti-racism to a limited government uh, worldview or political uh, philosophy. He talks about Ibram Kendi, who uh, has written several prominent books about being an anti-racist. And he says that Ibram Kendi wants a department of anti-racism that would basically have carte blanche control over local and states' governments. His, meaning Kendi's, definition of racism is any policy that results in disparate outcomes for different groups. Now, I just want to note, everyone, I've read Ibram X. Kendi, and his definition of racism is much different than that and much more expansive. The pursuit of equal results is only going to be successful in a new woke totalitarianism, he says. Um, all right. I'll leave it there, Dan. Uh, there's a lot to unpack and probably more than you can say in a couple of minutes, but what do you think? <laughs> yeah, it's just the kind of things that like, you know, it's so it, the, the reasoning is so bad that you want to not engage it, but you have to, as you say, it's a think tank and it's, it's, it's just sort of unreal here. So a couple things and, and just notice uh, you do this with students. I do this with students, right? Just notice the sly, the sly connections that are made, the equivalences between terms, right? Um, so he's talking about, you know, the, these kind of um, per, you know, progressives and the evils of progressives and, and what we call classical liberalism or the founders. Um, and he says a fairly fixed view of what? Of human nature and the rights attendant to it. And contrast this with the notion that rights evolve over time. That notion of a fixed human nature is one of the most pernicious and dangerous ideas that there is. Why? Among other things, he's talking about race and gender. He's right. A lot of the founders did think human nature was fixed. I mentioned John Locke earlier, who's not one of the founders, but hugely influential thinker on folks like Thomas Jefferson. And we could look at other classical thinkers like Immanuel Kant or others. Guess what they believed very, very explicitly and clearly that when they talked about human nature and and human rationality and universal rights, they were for white people. They were explicit about it. John Locke, one could make an argument that his entire political theory is premised on the notion that there's this North American continent that's populated by savages. That would be a term he might use. And that if you don't like Europe, you can go live there because it's quote unquote empty. They don't count as human beings. So, yeah, that's your fixed notion of human nature. Uh, the notion that women are not rational enough to do things like vote or hold government or control property or anything else. All the stuff about gender identity that's implied there that is just biologically indefensible at this point, psychologically indefensible, was just based on kind of armchair notions of, of gender and whatever. So when, when, they, when they defend it in the sense of, well, you know, human nature is fixed, that's bad. We don't want that, right? And so I would agree. I'd say, yeah, rights, rights evolve. Why do they evolve? They evolve because we understand that human nature isn't fixed, that there is. <laughs> there is no human nature, right? There is no fixed human nature. And we realize that groups deserve rights and recognitions they haven't had and, and so forth. But I want to just jump down now to this issue of, of anti-racism. And so first of all, I don't know how I want to be labeled, but I don't know if I want to be an anti-anti-racist. Um, they used to say not to use double negatives. I think if you put anti-anti-racist together and cross out the antis, you're just left with racist. So there's that. 
But the other one is this, when he says that, that what supposed anti-racism is about is preventing differential outcomes, right? That's overly simplistic. Everybody knows this. It's not, it's not, doesn't have to be the suggestion that the teenage clerk at McDonald's should make the same amount of money as the well-trained like emergency room physician or something silly like that. It's the evidence that those differential outcomes are heavily correlated with gender or sexuality or ethnicity or whatever, and that that should be adapted. But notice what he says. He says, you always, uh, he says this a little further on, you always have different outcomes between different groups. Why? He says, because human nature is varied. So we've just moved from the sense that there's a fixed human nature to there are different human natures. He says, we all have different talents. No, he's not talking about different talents. What he's saying is, and it's the same thing people have said for centuries, well, you know, the reason that black people don't have as much money as white people is white people are just better by nature, right? So that's one of those those things. It's it's literally chilling to me. I break out in like sort of a cold sweat when I read that, this language that human nature is varied. Human nature is fixed. Number one, it can't be changed and it's varied. We don't all have the same human nature and rights shouldn't evolve. So we're not all entitled as people with different human natures to the same rights in a society. Sorry, everybody. This is just, it's just fascism 101. That's all this is. And that's, and that, that's what this is. All this, this language about going to the founders and so forth. It's just a kind of patriotic American fascism. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's so much here and we could go on. We could go on for ever about this. I would just encourage y'all Look this interview up because, as Dan said, I think chilling is the right word. Uh, there's we could do we could exegete this text down for the next three hours. Uh, we really could. Um, all right, let's take a break, and when we come back, we're going to look at another essay from the Claremont Institute that is might even be more chilling. Dan, I'm not sure. So, okay, so. Let's go to uh, another essay from the Claremont Institute. And again, friends, why are we doing this? Because the Claremont Institute is a think tank that uh, not only uh, produced, right, the, the, or not produced is the wrong word, but uh, is, a, is a strong backer of the lawyer who provided Trump with his blueprint for a coup, but it is also a place that just gained incredible notoriety during the Trump administration as an ally and as a place that uh, MAGA Nation looked for its sort of intellectual uh, foundation. Okay. So I want to look at a, uh, uh, an essay by Glenn Elmers from March of, um, uh, this year, 2021. And he talks about how in this essay, being conservative is no longer enough. Okay. So he says all hands on deck as we enter the counter-revolutionary moment. So this is Glenn Elmers writing, uh, for the Claremont Institute in March. Here's how he starts, Dan. Let's be blunt. The United States has become two nations occupying the same country. When pressed or in private, many would now agree. Fewer are willing to take the next step and accept that most people living in the United States today, certainly more than half, are not Americans in any meaningful sense of the term. So there it is, y'all. You think Dan and I are just out here making stuff up, caricatures, straw men, so we can have a podcast. Guess what? The favorite think tank of the Trump administration, the place that is all MAGA all the time, the place where the person who drew up the blueprint for the coup on January 6th is associated, okay? 
uh, we have somebody riding here, Glenn Elmers, who's also, I should mention, Dan, affiliated with Hillsdale College. So many of you will know Hillsdale, which is in Michigan, is a private uh, evangelical school. Evangelical might be the wrong word, fundamentalist. Uh, it is... Uh, you know, it's founded by Free Will Baptist, and uh, it is notorious as sort of um, a Christian nationalist place, a place that is uh, conservative even for Christian colleges, right? The kind of place that uh, people sort of uh, know as infamous. So Glenn Elmers is associated with Claremont, Hillsdale College, and he's saying, Dan, that more than half of the people in this country are not Americans in any meaningful sense of the term. I gander you have some thoughts about this. <laughs> I do, yeah. Uh, so... <clears throat> It, every now and then, uh, you know, you, you read, you're an academic, I'm an academic, we read lots of abstruse stuff. And every now and then, you know, you're trying to find like, how can I possibly illustrate this? How could I do? And then something just falls out and you're like, oh, that's like a caricature of what I was just saying. It fits so well. I gave a couple talks last year. My book, Queer Democracy, came out this August. Last year, I was, you know, I was, I was talking about some of the themes in it. And in trying to explain the distinction between nation and state, right, we talk about nationalism and and I've made this point so many times that the idea is that not all of those who are a member of a nation are also members of the state or vice versa. This is exactly what he says. There are two nations in the state. And in trying to explain this, people, what I've said is this, this means that when we talk about the real Americans, who the real Americans are, it's not everybody who lives within the borders of the United States. And it's not everybody who has citizenship in the United States. It's only those who are part of the true or authentic nation or the people, these ideas we were just talking about. And here's here's what he says, right? As you said, more than half uh, are not Americans in any meaningful sense. So not everybody who lives in America is an American. He goes on to say this. I don't just mean the millions of illegal immigrants. Obviously, those foreigners who have bypassed the regular processes for entering our country and probably will never assimilate to our language and culture are politically as well as legally aliens, right? So it's not everybody within the borders, but then he goes on to say this, and this is the key. This is what makes nationalism nationalism, right? This is what differs from just the idea that, oh, well, we all live in a nation, so what does nationalism mean? Here's what. I'm really referring, he writes, to the many native-born people some of whose families have been here since the Mayflower, who may technically be citizens of the United States, but are no longer, if they ever were, Americans. To be an American is not to be a U.S. citizen. To be a U.S. citizen is not to be an American. There's something more than that. And what is it? For these folks, it's Christian nationalism, right? If you're not a Christian nationalist, you're not a real American. If you don't fit, we've talked about this, the image of the prototypical real American as straight, white, Christian, native born, and on and on and on, you're not a real American. And that's exactly what he's saying. So yeah, as you say, uh, the reason I emphasize this is I've, I've, I've said kind of this to try to explain what it is that Christian nationalists think about Americans. And then along comes Elmer's, whose essay I wish I'd had when I was giving those talks, who says exactly the same thing. So just, just to make that point, it's not just a bunch of egghead academics talking about this stuff. The, the right wing think tank is saying exactly the same thing. Not all Americans are real Americans. Real Americans is some other subset of those who are in this country. He calls them in the essay citizen aliens, and he also calls them non-American Americans. Again, it, it's hard to make this stuff up. Like, you know, Dan, it, it, yeah. There, if Again, if anybody out there thinks we're just out here erecting straw men every week to knock down, well, here you go. Um, not only is this... Uh, from the Claremont Institute, but the Claremont Institute is, as we've said, 
pretty prominent when it comes to MAGA Nation and the Trump administration. Let me continue, Dan. Elmer says, both right and left know where they stand today, and it is not together, not anymore. Practically speaking, there is almost nothing left to conserve. So this is Elmer's sort of polemicizing against uh, what he takes to be conservative ink, like all of the conservative think tanks and the conservative apparatus in terms of money and funding and donors, basically the Republican Party, as it has been understood for the last 75 years, he's like, that that doesn't work anymore, okay? There's nothing left to conserve. So it's not about being a, Dan, I want to get something clear for Elmer's. It's not about being a conservative. That's not what he's after. There's nothing left to conserve. What is actually required, he says, is a recovery or a refounding of America as it was long and originally understood but which now exists only in the hearts and minds of a minority of citizens, overturning the existing post-American order and reestablishing America's ancient principles and practice is a sort of counter-revolution and the only road forward. So uh, I want to just say this. If uh, About a month ago, I interviewed Dr. Uh, Liliana Mason from Johns Hopkins, who has a paper out with co-authors called Animating Animus. If you look at that interview... What uh, Dr. Mason and her colleagues uh, explain is that the, 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 the data shows us that Trump voters and the Trump coalition is made up of people who are not necessarily Republican, but people who have animus toward religious, racial minorities and immigrants. I mean, the data shows us that if you dislike and openly have disdain for black people, for immigrants, for uh, people of non-Christian and, and we should add non-Jewish faiths, okay, then you are very, very likely to be a Trump voter. And we can track that. And there's even a chance that you were not a Republican before, that you didn't care about the likes of Mitt Romney or George Herbert Walker Bush. But when Trump came along, you were willing to vote for him twice because he was the guy that was openly against all these groups that you consider un-American and, and tearing down your country. We see that here in Elmer's essay, Dan, right? That there's nothing left to conserve. Start over. What we need is a refounding, a counter-revolution, that we have to reestablish America. This is not. This is dangerous, dangerous rhetoric. Uh, anyway, th- what do you think? I, I agree. Like he, he goes on to say in here, he says that he says very explicitly in this essay, real Americans are Trump voters. Like he says that that's who the real Americans are. He goes on and he says, um, he says, the position they represent transcends the conservative divisions by representing the true nonpartisan understanding of America, right? So that's, that's the real Americans. But he also says, as you noted, that they're a minority. And what does that mean, right? Again, we're back to populist logic. It means that there ought to be minority rule of the country and it ought to be ongoing, right? That this privileged minority holds the key to returning the nation to what it's intended to be. And the logic here, if you follow it out, is that that everything that happened on January 6th should have happened. One of the things that happens, and that this happens with the conservatives, it happens with MAGA Nation, it happens with all of this, happens in populist movements, is they always claim to be speaking for the majority, right? It's a kind of radical majoritarianism, that there can be no minority, there can be no dissent, you know, we speak for the majority. And people will say, well, yeah, except that they're a minority of the U.S. population. Like, how does that work? And here's how it works. If you believe that only... Trump voters are real Americans, 
then you can say you're speaking for real Americans. You represent real America. You represent the majority of real Americans, even if numerically you're a minority, because all those other people, they're, they're usurpers. They're not real Americans. They're a threat to American identity. And so populism actually envisions in the U.S. and Christian nationalism a kind of minority majoritarianism. That is, even if they're a numerical minority, they still, and I think they really believe, that they are in fact the true Americans and therefore the majority of those for whom this country was built and by whom it was founded and that they're the ones who are entitled for it. And again, that's it's a recipe for disaster, right? It's as anti-democratic as you can possibly be to have this political ideology that says the real Americans are a numerical minority of the people in this country, even of, of citizens in this country, and they should rule. And if they're not ruling, it's it's the end of Western civilization. They've been usurped. It's a departure from the founding uh, intentions and so forth. So it is. It's it's chilling. And again, just to say that this is put forward as as an intellectual piece, right? This is this is what passes for intellection. This is this is the best thought that MAGA nation has behind it. Well, and Elmer's Elmer's is sort of self-reflexive. So in the essay, he's like, look, sometimes people call us Claremont conservatives or true MAGAs. Okay. And here's what he says in response, right? In fact, however, they, meaning Claremont conservatives or true MAGAs, are not a partisan faction or an interest group at all. On the contrary, the position they represent transcends the conservative divisions by representing the true nonpartisan understanding of America. So there it is, Dan, right? He, he did everything you just said in terms of minority majoritarianism and uh, Christian nationalism and populism, right? It is... We represent the, the true nonpartisan understanding of America. That's just that's who we are. Everyone else is a non-American American or a citizen alien or or a whatever. And so, you know, we just have to work to refound the country despite them. And even though he says in the in, in the as you just outlined, Dan, in, in the beginning of the essay, that over half the country does not agree that this is the true understanding of America. He's telling you, I know that I don't have a majority here. I know that in a, in a democratic way, I can't win. So I have to say that everyone who's against me is not a real American. I have to try to incite a counter-revolution and then claim that I have the true understanding of America, and that is why it is legitimate for, for, for me to do it this way, okay? Um, so he says at the end, it's time to give up on the idea that conservatives can have anything useful to say, except the fact that what we need is a counter-revolution, and go from there. It's pretty vague, Dan. And I, what I, what I really don't like when I read between the lines here is there's no encouragement to vote to, uh, you know, uh, overturn uh, Senate seats or congressional seats or whatever, right? It's just this open-ended, like, well, what we need is a counter-revolution. And and I'm quoting now. He says, "Learn some useful skills, stay healthy, and get strong." Then he quotes his weightlifting uh, mentor, and uh, kind of goes from there. It's ominous in what it does not say. It does not say we need a counter-revolution through voting. We need a counter-revolution through, you know, free and fair elections. It's we need a counter-revolution and let me talk about staying healthy, getting strong, and lifting weights. Uh, there's an open-endedness here that if you read between the lines is is quite ominous. Uh, any final thoughts on the Claremont Institute, on Elmer's, on, uh, on Williams, blah, blah, blah? One I'm just going to make, you know, we talk about originalism a lot when it comes to like the Constitution and, and judicial things. And, and just I, I want people to notice the operation of this because it's really, really important, right? This this endless affirmation of the founders and what the founders wanted and what America was. 
and two really different, and I'm not going to say two Americas, I'm going to say two really different understandings of what America is. One is that its meaning is fixed, right? What it was is its essence. It's what it always has to be, and any departure from that can only be bad. And another one is an understanding that says whatever America is, that is ongoing, and that's the kind of thing that we, as as a nation as a country, I should say country, not nation in this context, that we as a country, that's what we're debating. That's what we're trying to decide. That's the debate that is going on is what we are as a country. It is an open question, what we are as a country. It's not fixed. It's not immutable. It's not ever changing and or uh, never changing. And just, just to throw this out there to give a simple example for people, uh, I've been married a long time. I know other people have too, or uh, maybe people have been a parent for, you know, uh, a long time. Brad Onishi has been a parent for a little while. He already knows this. What that means changes, right? Friendships change over time. Parenting relationships change over time. Marriages change over time. Work relationships change over time. None of those things are fixed and immutable and timeless. And they're sick and unhealthy if we think that they are. It's the same thing with who we are as a country. And that, that's that's the difference, Brad, that, that I think you're highlighting is that we're not going to vote about this. We're not going to have political debate about this. This isn't even an issue for debate. It's simply settled. This is a country for, for white Christian people. And go and learn useful, quote unquote, useful skills. We're not going to tell you what those are, but I'm like you. I fear that they involve, you know, storming Capitol buildings and carrying zip ties and things like that. I'm going to give everyone a little uh, a little tool for your your intellectual toolbox. If you ever encounter somebody who uh, wants to argue for their position by referring to an unchanging and idyllic paradise like past, if anybody ever re- refers to that which used to be as perfect as uh, ideal and then says now things have gotten worse and therefore we have to return to what was they have set up right? Something that does not exist in order to argue for their point. So they have, in this case, it is setting up for the founders America that was supposedly this wondrous paradise-like America that had these ideals that everybody consented to, right? You hear this with toxic masculinity, Dan, right? You'll hear, you'll hear toxic masculine sort of uh, voices out there saying, you know, uh, there's alpha males and there's beta males. And in the, in the, in our primordial past, it was the alpha males who won. They took control. And so if you want to be a successful, powerful man now, you have to be an alpha male, right? And what they've done is they've projected something in the past. They've told you, oh, uh, alpha males are the ones that took over the world and were successful. So therefore, you need to be like them, right? And what, what is going on there is a projection of the past that is, in essence, uh, uh, completely false, and, and it provides a false foundation for the argument. So in this case, Elmer's and everyone at the Claremont Institute really relies on, as you're saying, Dan, this vision of the unchanging America as founded in a Garden of Eden-like way and us having to return to that, when in reality, that never existed. And two, that is not how the human condition works. Everything changes, evolves, and grows and passes away. That is what it means to be involved in this thing called the human condition. And so when people try to argue for the timeless, eternal, unchanging, invulnerable states, run away and, and see the red, the, the, the red flags all over the place. All right, Dan, let's talk about, uh, let's switch gears and finish up with this. Last Saturday, there were women's marches all over the country. And these have been happening, of course, since 2016 when Trump was elected. I was in D.C., uh, at the at the first women's march, um, 
uh, all those years, what feels like a lifetime ago, but uh, was only five years ago. And uh, the thing I want to highlight, though, is what happened in Texas. So I think that this year's uh, women's uh, marches across the country, uh, as always, were focused on women's rights. But there was a particular focus on abortion and reproductive rights in, in the wake of what happened in Texas uh, uh, about a month and a half ago. Uh, there's a, a nice piece at The Nation that talks about this, and it, it go, it's on the ground in Texas uh, at, the, at the rally. And here is uh, what Amy Littlefield writes in that piece at The Nation. She's talking about this woman, Anna, who's a, a 21-year-old person who's, who's uh, an organizer of the march. A poised 21-year-old in platform combat boots and round wireframe glasses, Anna is here with a contingent of activists from Texas that feels like a delegation from the future. I say this not only because states elsewhere have moved to pass laws copying the near-total ban in Texas, or because in less than two months, the Supreme Court, with its new conservative majority, will hear a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade. If the court upends Roe, as many as 26 states are expected to ban abortion, cutting off access to almost half of all women of reproductive age and even more trans and non-binary people who are able to get pregnant. I want to tell you about Anna because compared to 2017, Saturday's march felt to me less like a reaction to an impending crisis and more like the national debut of a new generation of visionary feminist leaders, many of them young, many of them black or Asian or indigenous or Latina, many of them queer, many of them from the South, many of them from Texas in particular, many of them who have had abortions, all of them unashamed of that fact. A couple of comments, Dan. One, it seems like that this abortion uh, ban in Texas could uh, be the foundation, as Anna Littlefield says here, for a new generation of activists to really become organized and involved in politics in Texas and across the South and across the country. That's number one. Uh, number two, I, I wonder if this is not also, if we zoom out, one of the ways that we see Texas go blue. Uh, friends, I know out there it's easy, and this happens on social media, to uh, sort of, in the wake of, of laws being passed like Texas abortion bill, to just blithely place all of Texas into some sort of bucket as uh, deep red and uh, anti-reproductive uh, rights and et cetera. But if you look at Texas, there are more you know Democratic voters in Texas than there are in New Hampshire or Vermont or Massachusetts, because there's so many people in Texas. Uh, when Beto O'Rourke ran for Senate, you know, uh, a couple years ago, he lost, but only by a few percentage points, right? There's a chance, friends, that with the right organization, that you see a Democratic governor and senator in Texas uh, in, in our lifetime. We've seen Texas districts turn blue as it comes to Congress. So the reason I bring this up, Dan, is A, just this, this issue of abortion and a new generation of activists, and B, this could really backfire on the Republicans because this could be what actually turns Texas blue for the first time in a long time. So as we close, thoughts on this? Yeah. So to, to that latter point, uh, and, and not just Texas, but sort of national, because, of course, the, the Texas law has gained national significance. There, there's, there is, I think, a real risk that the GOP has overplayed its hand here, right? So uh, the Supreme Court, of course, allowed the law to go into effect. Um 54 54% of the American public opposed that, right? They felt like the law should not have been allowed to go into effect. Um, and just some some other other numbers, uh, six in 10 Americans say abortion should should be legal all the time or legal with some limitations. And those are those are pretty limited. That's 60%, six out of every 10 Americans. 
Um, 62% of Americans say the Supreme Court should leave Roe v. Wade as it is, right? So two-thirds of, of, of the U.S. There isn't massive popular support for this in the United States and it has become a national issue. Within Texas, is it higher? Of course it is. There are more, you know, more Republicans and all of that. But as you just highlighted, Texas is a much more heterogeneous state than a lot of people recognize. And it's one of those states that the GOP is really nervous about because it's becoming bluer and younger over time, right? It's the population is younger. It's drawing lots of people from all over the country, which means lots of young people, which means people who don't tend uh, to support uh, anti-abortion restrictions, um, more and more people of color and on and on and on. So I, I think, I think you and, and other observers are onto something and recognizing that this could be a really, really significant phenomenon for Texas I think it could be significant, Texas and, and other laws like it, sort of nationally, when people see how much opposition there is to this kind of legislation, right? Conservatives are are badly out of step with a majority of Americans on these issues. And so I think it could be, it, it could be really significant uh, in the sense, not just of sort of starting something, but as a symptom or, or an indicator of the dissatisfaction that exists among lots of Americans about these efforts to overturn uh, abortion rights. So I, I think it's potentially really significant. And I, I just want to throw out there one last thing, all those numbers I was just throwing out. It's from an, a Monmouth poll from just last month, right? So like really, really recent and, and current numbers on where Americans stand regarding abortion and abortion access. All right, let's go to reasons for hope. So we got a couple here to throw out at you, Dan, uh, in, from the Discord. So Nathan talks about how uh, there was just continuing on this, this whole issue, a federal judge blocks the Texas abortion law. And, uh, so there's already sort of, uh, as we've discussed on this show, there's already legal challenges to the abortion law in Texas. Um, obviously, uh, you know, Nathan and Austin talk about the debt ceiling did get raised. McConnell lost in some limited sense, I would say, but, uh, at least we're not going to default uh, on our debt as a nation. Uh, someone talking about Facebook and how Facebook was under the microscope this week. And they were, and, and there was, uh, you know, I, I definitely watched some of the, the, uh, whistleblowers testimony and what they talked about uh, as regard to Facebook and its algorithm and so on. And then, uh, somebody out in California near where I am talks about, uh, uh, there's a, uh, a chance that the Pfizer vaccine will be approved for kids five and up. And, uh, that is good news. And I, I wonder if this is the one where we're going to get Dan, um, out here in California, Governor Newsom also announced that uh, you'll have to be vaccinated to attend school. And so that plan is going into place pretty soon. So, Dan, did we get you? Well, what first of all, I, I tried some misdirection last week with the Patriots. And uh, I just I just want to acknowledge it was not the gratifying loss that I'd hoped it might be. But I, I'm still reveling in schadenfreude. Uh, no, they they those are all good. Abortion blocked the debt ceiling or, or aboard the abortion law being blocked, the debt ceiling, Facebook. Uh, I had hoped my misdirection might work better than it did. Yeah, they, they got me with the, the Pfizer one, right? I saw that. Um, I, like lots of people, uh, am eager for that to happen. I still have one child uh, whose birthday is today uh, who is underage for vaccines, and it's really, really scary. And so I saw that news and was really excited about that. I wish I understood better the pace of government movement when <laughs> – like they have a meeting scheduled for October 26th. And I'm just like, I can't they do that faster, but um, I, I want them to follow all the protocols. So uh, somebody from California, as you say, uh, got it. Um, 
so that 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 was my my main one for this week. But I mean, all these others are, are legitimate. This whistleblower from Facebook, uh, whose testimony was really pretty amazing and pretty riveting, uh, and earned a response from uh, Zuckerberg, which was like really pretty weak and not well received. I think that that was really significant. Um, the debt ceiling, I wish would just go away. <laughs> But well, yeah. we'll we'll talk more about that in the extended segment because I have some things to say about that. I'll, so. I'll bet you do. So uh, no, yeah. so reason for hope it was it was the Pfizer vaccine. So gold star uh, for that. But thank you to everybody for the others and and just for all of us to keep looking for those. I think that's really important. There's a lot of negative things to focus on. They're important to focus on. You and I spend a lot of time doing that, but to try to find uh, those positive, hopeful signs as well, I think is really important. All right, friends, as we announced, we have a couple things. One, I'm leading a group, uh, a support group on uh, love, sex, masculinity after purity culture. If you want to sign up, go to traumaresolutionandrecovery.com and go to the support groups tab. That's starting next week. So you have a couple more days to have one of the last spots. Number two, uh, we will be unveiling our next uh, Straight White American Jesus seminar for January next week so we'll have dates and uh, the sign up link will be will be going live so please be looking forward to that our last one filled up very quickly we already have folks on a waiting list so if you're interested i would say get ready um and uh, next friday when we uh, open all that up um be ready to go we are thankful for all of you you can find us online at straight white jc at tiktok instagram and on twitter you can find me at bradley onishi and uh, we can always use your support on, on PayPal and Patreon. Uh, we're trying to do this show uh, as best as we can, and, and your support really makes that possible. So we're going to turn now to our extended segment, uh, and I'm going to just uh, rant about Joe Manchin. So if you're not a patron yet, sign up to do that now, not only so you can have an ad-free experience, but so that you can get our extended segment every week. Un uh, until then, uh, we'll catch you all next time. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Brian. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.